We're asking questions. Sometimes there's questions that we just don't even know we should ask. Sometimes there's questions that we're afraid to ask, we're not sure. Sometimes there's questions that we think we should already know the answer to. And so we're looking at these questions over the next several weeks. And today we're going to be asking a very important question, as we already were asked in this video here, is who is Jesus? Now, we're in church. We think maybe we all know who Jesus is. We come to church because we know who Jesus is, right? Maybe we do. Maybe we don't. Maybe we're searching. Maybe you're joining online and you got questions. You go, I'm not sure. Who is Jesus really? How we answer this question is vitally important. And so today what I want to do is I want to take you into the seminary classroom. Sound fun? Yeah. <laughs> that was a half-hearted, yeah, okay, school, it's the weekend. No, we're going to dive into this question because we need to know the answers. We need to ask questions like, is there evidence that supports that Jesus even existed? Was Jesus a real person? What did he claim? And of his claims, was he really the son of God? Do we have evidence for that? And what about the resurrection? Because these are hurdles, these are questions that really stand between us and our faith and between many and their faith. And maybe you've had some doubts. Maybe you've had some struggles. Anywhere, anyone here besides me ever doubt or struggle in their faith? Ever. Ever, ever one time in your faith. Okay. No, seriously, raise your hand if you have ever doubted or struggled in your faith. Look around, please. Look around, please. Okay, this is not an uncommon thing. I'm not forcing you to struggle or doubt in your faith, but I think this is a, a challenge that many of us have. And maybe it was a time in the past, and you've been long past that point now in your life, but other times you might hit that place again and again, or you come back to places, and I have to answer this question for myself. Because there's this part about being a pastor and standing in front of people and teaching the Word of God and saying, I better hope, and not just hope, I better know that this is true, otherwise am I just wasting my life? Am I wasting my energy and my time? Are we wasting our time here gathering in church? Is this all just a, a show of something? Is this just something imaginary that we just cling to? What, what is here? And maybe you've never really taken the time to go deeper and say, what is it that I believe and why do I believe it? And so we're going to go into this and say, all right, who is Jesus? And maybe you think, all right, let's prove it. Can I prove to you that Jesus is real? Well, yes and no. If, I, if you ask me to prove it scientifically or mathematically, I can't. I can't prove it to you scientifically and mathematically. And this is where so many of us in our culture, we think, unless you can prove it scientifically or mathematically in this way, then, then it's not real. But here's the, here's the thing. Science and math can only answer questions to a certain point. Science and math ask, answer the questions, the what and the how. Right? What and how. They can tell us what happened. They can tell us how things happened, what, what's there. But you know what they can't answer? It's the who and the why. They can't answer the who and the why question. So let's say, um, let's say we have this beautiful cake here. Take a look at this cake. Isn't that, isn't that lovely? Maybe, maybe not, <laughs> how you feel about that. Now, this cake, what I could do is I could bring this cake to a bunch of scientists, and I could say to the scientists, and they could take it to a lab, and I say, tell me about this cake. And you know what they could tell me? They could probably go and they could take some time and research and say, here's all the ingredients. I can tell you exactly what ingredients there were. I can tell you like, like the what, how, you know, what went into this cake. I can tell you how this cake was made. It needed certain temperature, certain ingredients needed to be mixed. And, and here's the order and the process in which we got to this final state of this cake that makes it edible. And here's how it can be digested. They can tell us all of those things, the what and the how questions. But you know what they can't answer is who made the cake and why did they make it? That's kind of important, right? Who, makes the, who, who made the cake and why did they make it if we want to know more? But, but science and math can't answer that question. You know who can? 
The person who made the cake. The baker can answer that question. The creator can answer the question for us. Why are we here? Who is this and why are we here? And so we have to ask these questions in a, in a deeper sense, not just look at the, the science, but who is behind all this? Can we know him? Why are we here? We looked at that question last week. Is there more to life than this? Because those are fundamental human uh, questions that we ask about our existence and how we understand Jesus is critically important. In our movement of churches called the Church of God with the headquarters in Anderson, Indiana, we're connected with hundreds and thousands of churches that, that, uh, that, we, that we partner with uh, both here in the state and nationally and around the world. And there's a phrase in our movement that has, has, has become a very um, central piece of understanding who we are. And the phrase that is often spoken is, Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the subject. Jesus is the center point. Jesus is the focal point. And how we understand Jesus has everything to do with how we understand our faith and our world and our life. And if we don't get this right, we miss out on everything else. We don't get anything else right. And so in order to, to prove this, in order to understand this, we have to get beyond the science and the math. And we have to enter this arena of faith. This arena of faith. Now, in this arena of faith, what you might not understand is not just that some people have faith and other people don't have faith. Every single person in this planet has faith. Do you know that? Every person has faith. Even those that don't believe there's a God, if you don't believe there's a God, you have faith. You're putting your faith in something that is nothing or that there isn't anything. But you, you can't prove it scientifically. You can't prove to me mathematically that God doesn't exist, right? Just like I can't prove that he does. There's, there's more to it. There's faith. But, but we, is it only that we have to take this, this leap of faith, this step of faith? Is faith blind? You know, just have to have blind faith. And so many times when, when we talk about faith, it's this idea, or people think of it like, well, let's put all the facts aside. Let's put all the knowledge aside and just blindly step out in faith. And, and that's what faith is. I don't know, if you have to deny everything about science and anything that's proven to you, and if there's facts that point to something else, and you would just deny that and still have faith, I wouldn't call that faith. I would call that foolishness, right? You don't have to step into foolishness. You don't have to step into absurdity. And so how do we understand? How do we know? And so let's consider some of the evidence, because there is evidence, believe it or not. <laughs> there is evidence. It's not all scientific or mathematic, but there is evidence. And one of those pieces of evidence is historical evidence. And when you think about historical evidence, it's used every single day in, in courtrooms. Lawyers, judges, juries. Think about the Murdoch trial that you guys have probably heard on the news, right? Nobody was there except the guy that's, being, that, that's put on trial. And so everything that's being done today is being, trying to reconstruct a historical event. And every jury that ever rules in a jury and makes a decision is doing it based on historical evidence. And it's basically a step of faith saying that based on what has been presented historically is what I'm going to base a decision on. So we do this all the time. We base it on historical evidence and, and those types of pieces. And so today we're going to look at that. We're going to look at the historical evidence. Who is Jesus? Was he the son of God? What did he say about himself? Was the resurrection real? And, and, and this argument and this, uh, this understanding to come to this point, what we're going to use today, as we've been using in this series, we've talked about uh, the Alpha series, which was founded by, by Nicky Gumbel. Nicky Gumbel is, is, a, is a pastor in England. He actually just uh, retired this last year. Uh, and, and he's developed this course over many years because he himself was, uh, he's a lawyer, trained lawyer from a family of lawyers. 
And, and he was someone who actually was very against the Christian faith, telling his friends and telling others, don't buy into that. Don't let them suck you in. It's not real. And he realized at one point that he needed to investigate it for himself. And so he went and he read the New Testament and he studied it and he dove deep and he, and he came to a place of discovering and saying for himself, this is true. This is real, and this is what he bases his life on. And then as he continued to develop this course called the Alpha Course, it has now introduced, what is it, over 30 million people have been introduced to the Christian faith. I mean, think about these numbers, 140 countries, 170 languages. I mean, this is incredible. And so there are people finding hope and finding life, and this is how he came to that conclusion. Here are some of the things that he looked at, and I want to look at those with you today. And so let's, let's jump into this. And so we have to look at, first of all, a very foundational question. If you want to know who Jesus is, we're going to start with the, this foundational question, did Jesus even exist? Even as we heard in those interviews, some people aren't even sure, is he even real? Is he just made up? And, 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 and did Jesus actually exist? And so now we're going to look again at the historical evidence. And the historical evidence is overwhelming. And of course, we have the Bible, and I'm going to talk about that in a moment. But we have evidence outside of the Bible. There are um, historians, uh, Tacitus and Suetonius, who wrote about Jesus. And then I remember even studying about a guy named Josephus. You hear about him a lot in, in seminary. He was a first century um, historian. And here's what he wrote. There was about this time Jesus, a doer of wonderful works. And then he goes on to talk about his, his life, his death, and even his alleged resurrection. And this is not somebody in the Bible. There are others outside the Bible who have attested to, yet, yes, there was this man named Jesus. And so then, of course, the other text that we rely on heavily is the New Testament. That's where we read about Jesus. We get to know Jesus. And the question we have to ask is, is this a reliable text? Is this something that we can really trust and study, because, or is this just some religious book that was made up, and, and we don't even know if it's real, and we're 2,000 years removed from the events of, this, um, of what's happening and being written about? Uh, what are the oldest manuscripts? Can we even trust what we have today? And so what we need to do is we get into an area called textual criticism. It's not just used in, uh, in theological circles. It's used to verify and to see the accuracy and the reliability of ancient texts. And so instead of me explaining to you, I'm going to show you a video from Alistair McGrath, someone else we have to read in seminary. And he's a, he's a theologian and a scholar, and he's going to help us understand the reliability of the New Testament. So take a listen here. And examines the number of copies of early texts that we have available to us today. And it looks at the time gap between the original document and the earliest copy that we have. And basically, the more manuscripts we have and the earlier they are, the less doubt there's going to be about the original. So let's compare the Bible to other texts in ancient history, ones that are widely used in schools and universities. Let's look at the Greek historians Herodotus and Thucydides. They both wrote in the 5th century BC. But the earliest copy of their writings that we have dates from AD 900, and that makes a 1,300-year time lapse. And even then, we only have eight copies of these manuscripts in the first place. Or look at the Roman historian Tacitus. There's a thousand-year gap between his book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies. Or another classic, Caesar's Gallic War, 950 years between the book being written and our first manuscript copy. And even then, we only have nine or ten copies of these manuscripts. Again, with Livy's famous History of Rome, 
a 900-year gap between the book being written and our first manuscript, and we only have 20 copies of this. But when it comes to New Testament, well, it's very different. The New Testament was written between about 40 and 100 AD, and we have manuscript evidence going back as early as 130 AD, and full manuscripts by 350 AD. And we have more than 5,300 Greek manuscripts, 10,000 Latin translations, and 9,300 others. So, you know, we can be pretty confident in the accuracy, the authenticity, and the integrity of the New Testament scriptures that have been passed down to us today. The remarkable thing about the Bible is there's such a short chronological distance between the events being described and our first manuscripts. So in many ways, the Bible scholars are in a very fortunate position of being able to check these things out and finding that they are much more reliable than, for example, some of the alternatives you're looking at. And as a scholar, I am more than happy to say, I trust this, I take it very, very seriously, I rely on it. This is why we let scholars do that kind of stuff, right? <laughs> look into those things. But I think it's important to understand that as we look at historical documents, that the New Testament is reliable. Another uh, older scholar that really was a translator of the Bible, his name was uh, F.J.A. Hort, he said this. He said, in the variety and fullness of the evidence on which it rests, the text of the New Testament stands absolutely and unapproachably alone amongst ancient prose writings. And so this is, scholars would agree with this, not just within theological circles, but any historian would agree that this is a very reliable text when it comes to its authenticity and to the events that happened there. Now, as far as the believing of some of the miraculous, that's not what textual criticism does, but it says what we have is really accurate. So we know that Jesus existed. We know he existed, but the question becomes then, who is Jesus? He existed as a human being. People saw him, witnessed him, so he had emotions, and, and he went about his day, and he, had, you know, he, he was in a physical body. But, but who is Jesus? Is he the prophet, as some had said there? Is he a good teacher? Um, is he just a religious figure? Was he truly the Son of God? Was he truly the Son of God incarnate? That's where some of you might go, and some might say, yeah, that's just, that's just a stretch. For those that are you know, checking out the faith or thinking about it, going, I don't know, that, that seems to be a hurdle that might just be too far. So now we're going to dive into that. And to answer this question about who is Jesus, we're going to look at two parts. What did Jesus say about himself? And then the question is, was he right? What did Jesus say about himself and was he right? So let's look at this first question. What did Jesus say about himself? If, if I want to know about you, who's the best person for me to go talk to? <laughs> You, right? Nobody knows you better than you. Now, of course, we have family and friends and others that, that know us and can fill in some different perspectives, but it's important to go to the source. Now, what's interesting about Jesus, different from other teachers and religious leaders who would often point away from themselves and to a different teaching and, and to the truths and those kinds of things, Jesus continually pointed back to himself. Now, that seems kind of egotistical, that seems kind of self-centered, and yet he is known as the most humble person. Right? His humility is what shines through and through from Jesus. And so what's going on here? What did Jesus say about himself? And so we look at the scriptures, and what did Jesus say? Last week, we looked at two of these things that he said. The first thing that we looked at was, I am the bread of life. Saying, I'm going to satisfy your hunger, I'm going to satisfy your thirst, that longing that you have. Jesus said, I will fill that. I am the bread of life. 
And then we looked at the other passage, which was, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. To make those kinds of claims are, is pretty audacious. The way is found in me. Life is found in me. Truth is found in me. Wow, that's pretty incredible. But here's other things that Jesus said. He said, if I set you free, you will truly be free. Interesting. Again, put yourself in that context. Here's a person, a man, Jesus, standing in front of a crowd saying, if I set you free, you will truly be free. He goes on in different places. says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. He didn't just tell us how to go and find rest. He says, I'm going to give it to you. We read in Matthew 10, 40, if you receive me, you receive God. If you welcome me, you welcome God. He's starting to make a much stronger connection here, right? And then John 14, 9, if you have seen me, you have seen God. Again, pretty remarkable claims. There's a story of a little girl who was at school, and she was coloring, and she was drawing something, and the teacher went up to her and said, you know, what are you, what are you drawing? What are you, what are you doing there? She said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher was like, well, you can't draw a picture of God. No one's, ever, no one's ever seen God. Nobody knows what he looks like. And she said, they will in a minute. <laughs> it's just this little moment when Jesus is saying, look, we don't, haven't ever seen God. And Jesus is saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. If you've seen who I am, that's how we see God. We get a picture of God. We get to see who he is. But, but Jesus didn't just make these claims. There were also some other indirect claims that those around him were saying he claims to be God. Look at this passage in, in Mark chapter 2. This was after the, the, um, some friends lowered a, a paralyzed man in front of uh, Jesus to be healed. And Jesus said, seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, my child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, what is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. So those who were there were listening to Jesus' words, and if he claims that he can forgive sins, he's actually claiming to be God. That's blasphemy. Nobody can claim to be God. But Jesus was, was unabashed in, in, his, in his declarations here. In John 10, we read this. Jesus said it very clearly, very direct. The Father and I are one. And when he said that, it said, once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. And Jesus said, at my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? They replied, we are stoning you, not for any good works, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. So there's no question, if you read the New Testament, those that were around him, those that wrote about it, those that reported about it, Jesus made no bones about it that he claimed to be not just a human being, but that he and the Father were one, that he was the Son of God. So we have now in front of us this to wrestle with. If you ask, who is Jesus, and you ask Jesus, well, is he truly the Son of God? So theologians and historians throughout the, 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 the centuries have basically come to this conclusion, C.S. Lewis being um, one of the foremost that put it in these terms. He said, Jesus is either one of three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or he's the Lord. So if you want to be rational, if you want to be logical, and if you just want to think about this not from a heart or emotional or faith perspective, you have to approach it that it's got to be one of these three things. He's either a liar, a lunatic, or the Lord. So, if, and, and so the way we look at this, if it's not true that he's not the Son of God, and Jesus knew that, but yet he continued to say this, then it's clear that he's a liar, right? So if Jesus is going around, I know I'm not the Son of God, but I'm just going to tell everybody that I am, then he's a blatant liar. So we have that to, to contend with. And if he was, 
then he has perpetuated the most amazing lie for thousands of years that has duped millions and billions of people, including probably the majority of us maybe sitting here today. So is he a liar? Well, if he's not a liar, then another possibility is that it's not true. He's not the son of God, but Jesus just didn't realize it. <laughs> I mean, he just, you know, if, he, if that's the case, then he's a lunatic, right? He's insane. He's, he's deranged. He doesn't have his mind straight. And so, you know, is that possible that he just actually thought he was the son of God but really wasn't? But then you look at his life and you look at his teaching and you look at the impact that it's had and the way in which you live and you go, that just doesn't seem to reconcile that, that this is the life and, and legacy of, of a lunatic and that others would follow in that way. It, it, but it's, it's certainly one of the options. But if he's not a liar and if he's not a lunatic, that leaves you one other option. It's true that Jesus is the Son of God. And so you have to make a choice between these three things. And, and normally, people, or many people that, that aren't of faith try to find some other position in between. And C.S. Lewis addresses this. Here's, here's what he says. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be insane or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else insane or something worse. I love this next part, but let's not come up with any patronizing nonsense about this being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So this idea, well, I don't believe that Jesus was the Son of God. Okay, he, the Bible proved he was real. I mean, he was a good teacher. How can he be a good teacher if he's lying to you about his existence? Or he's deranged, then what makes him a great teacher about that? So we have to wrestle with that. He's saying we can't find that middle ground. So we know Jesus claims he is the Son of God. So the question that we have to ask, if that's who Jesus says, then was he right? What evidence supports Jesus' claims? So let's look at a few things here real quick. One of the first things is his enduring teaching. Some of these great truths that Jesus taught, yes, he was a great teacher, there were things and things that he, you know, that he talked about, loving your enemies, doing good to those who persecute you, right? Those are, those are incredibly challenging truths, forgiving others. This is not normal teaching, and these teachings have impacted people and, and countries and laws, right? So this teaching has endured. Then we look at his life. Okay, he didn't just teach it, but he actually embodied, he lived a life of joy. He lived a life of peace and a life of humility, he loved the marginalized. He healed the sick. He cared for those around him. And he laid down his life. He didn't just teach to others saying, you know, he, he, Jesus taught, there's no greater love that one has for another than to lay down their life for a friend. And Jesus literally did that. So he embodied the teaching. So his teaching and his life. The third is his character. When we think about who he was. And if we look at, you know, Time Magazine, you know, they often pick like a man, man of the year, a person of the year, a person of the century. Here's what Time Magazine said about Jesus. He is the most persistent symbol of purity, selflessness, and love in the history of humanity. So, I mean, this, there, there's something about who he is and his, you know, his life and his character, right? That, that it wasn't just what he said about himself, but his friends also said it. His disciples, other followers said, this man is without sin. He's the real deal, the way that he's living that out. And when you think about someone's character, it, comes to, it, it really comes to the test in difficult situations, in times when you're pushed to the extreme. And there was no more extreme moment than when Jesus was nailed to a cross, dying, bleeding, gasping for his life and his breath. 
And in that moment, you see the true character of somebody. And what does Jesus say? Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they do. It's just the integrity that was there through and through and through. But here's another one, his fulfillment of prophecy. His fulfillment of prophecy. Did you know that Jesus fulfilled over 300 different prophecies written about him? 29 in one day alone. And it was written hundreds of years before he ever lived. Now, you might say, well, Jesus was, he was a pretty cunning con man. That he, uh, you know, he, he was a student and he read these and he's like, I'm going to make people think that I'm the fulfillment of these prophecies. And so I'm going I'm to do that. I'm going to, you know, teach these things. I'm going to, you know, behave in this way. I'm going to try to fulfill these prophecies. But the pro- prophecies talked about his place of birth. Could he have any control over that? Now, he may have just been lucky and be like, oh, whew, I was born in Bethlehem, and the prophecies say the person, you know, the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem, so I'm going to pretend to be the Messiah. But could he predict just like the prophecies did about his death and the way he would die, where and how that would all happen? It seems highly unlikely. He fulfilled prophecy. There's evidence there. And then perhaps the biggest hurdle and one that we all have to wrestle with is his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus claims to be the Son of God, then we have to wrestle with the resurrection as evidence. And many believers and others point to this as, as being the evidence. But, but do you believe it? Do you believe that Jesus died and then rose again from the grave? Here's the same question asked to some people out on the street. I don't don't know. I don't know if I believe that. Tyler rose from the dead. Sure. Possibly, if you wanted to. I mean, are we talking in a physical sense, or are we talking in a metaphorical sense? No. It's mythological. Even though I'm Greek Orthodox, and we're big on that. Yeah, sure. If he rose to dead, like, great. Definitely. Me, no. Yes. I don't have an answer. Uh, God's still working with me on that. I could believe it, but I can't say 100% like that's what my faith is just based on. I don't know. I've seen crazier things in my time. I believe anything could happen. Yes, absolutely. I do believe that he rose from dead. I think it's possible, but I don't know. I believe that he did. I mean, there are so many people around him that claim that he rose from the dead. I don't know. If he did, then that means Christianity is 100% real, so. It would sure be nice to know that uh, that was possible, because I would like to do that as well. All I know is that miracles exist, and if, if that's definitely one, then I'm with it. I'd like to talk to that one woman who said, I've seen crazier things. I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm really curious what, 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 she, what she saw. But let's, take, let's camp out on this here just for, for a moment of the resurrection, because it is such an important piece. Is, is this real? Did, did he really rise from dead? If Jesus is the Son of God and has power over the grave, we need to look at this a little deeper. And so here, let me look at four key pieces of evidence for the resurrection. Just in this part alone here, four key pieces of evidence. One is the empty tomb. Now, again, some might say, well, you know, that was just what they wrote and what they made up, and somebody stole the body, right? And even that's alleged. The Scripture doesn't even deny that. They say that people accused them, even at that point, that somebody stole the body. But the tomb is emptied. His body has never been found. There's been no remains that have been able to be found for that. And on top of that, there was like Jesus' grave clothes, the linens that he was wrapped in, the Bible tells us were folded and set there 
uh, by the side. Who would do that if they stole the body to first unwrap and then, wait a second, got to still you know, fold it here and set it aside? It, it seems unlikely, but, but the empty tomb is a piece of evidence for us. The second is this, his presence with his disciples. His presence with his disciples. So, so when we think about not only um, did Jesus in the Bible claim this, it's not that he died and then he rose and it's like nobody ever saw him. He was gone. But he was witness. He, there were witnesses that saw him, his disciples and others, but not just his disciples. You might say, well, they were kind of, you know, going to just all got together and agreed on this. But it says that over 500 people saw Jesus after his crucifixion and before his ascension. So after he died, they saw him. They witnessed him. They saw him in the flesh. And you might say, well, are they hallucinating? Were they just all kind of being deceived? And you read a story about Thomas who literally doubted and said, no, I'm not going to believe you guys. Even though his friend said it, he was a skeptic in that, and yet he encountered Jesus, and we read about these encounters in the Bible. The third is this, the transformation in the disciples, not just that they saw him. And for me, this is perhaps one of the greatest pieces of evidence for me. When you think about the disciples and the way that they um, feared for their life when Jesus was crucified, they were hiding, they were lying, they were denying ever knowing him. And just a few days later, what changed? What changed to the fact that they were willing to go to their grave, to the death, living out and proclaiming that Jesus was the Son of God, that he rose from the dead? They themselves were crucified. They themselves were stoned to death. They themselves were tortured and beaten for their faith. All they had to do, all they had to say was, all right, it's a lie. You'd think one of them would have broken afterward. But all of them, until their death proclaimed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I think other people saw that, and other people experienced that and, and lived that out. And that's now the greatest evidence we still have today is that it's still happening today. It's not just that we have to read just the historical pieces. Today, people are saying, Jesus Christ is Lord. We have encountered him. Over two billion people on planet Earth would say that they believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is still revealing himself, that Jesus is still showing himself. When we have these baptisms coming up and people sharing their testimony saying, I am all in, my life is in Christ. That's still happening today. I don't know if you've been following in, on social media, it hasn't been much in the national news, the Asbury revival at Asbury University. 18 days straight, 18 days ago, it ended last night, 18 days ago, uh, there was just a normal chapel happening on campus, and the chapel ended. It was just normal. It's a small Christian university in a two-light uh, town in Wilmore, Kentucky. And a couple students stayed after and just were praying and just spending time in, in extended worship, and the worship never ended. Can you imagine? Like, let's start today. In 18 days from now, 24 hours a day, we were just in here worshiping, praying. But what it was, it wasn't just the act of doing that, is the the sense and the experience of God's presence that was there, Account, recounted over and over again by those that were there. There was a peace that is being described, just a peace, a sense of wholeness. It was marked by confession. It was marked by just simple, spontaneous worship and prayer. There wasn't a lot of lights. There wasn't a lot of fanfare. There was no lights, no fanfare, no, no, no celebrities. And yet, fifteen to 20,000 people a day started flocking there to experience what God had done. And it wasn't just the first time that that happened. Even back in 1970, I have an indirect connection to the revival that happened in Asbury that spread around the country. A group came to the church that I was youth pastor at years before I was youth pastor, but I continued to hear the stories. 
and they came to Anderson, Indiana, South Meridian Church of God. And, and so when I was youth pastor here years later in the 90s, I'd hear these stories of people who were there that I think it was, I've read a couple different accounts, I think it was over 50, it was about 50 to 60 nights, every single night straight, they would they have worship every night for 50, 60 nights, just God's move, God's spirit showing up. Now, it doesn't just have to happen in these extraordinary ways. God shows up, I believe, every single Sunday in our midst. He shows up where two or three gather in his name, and he shows up in different ways, but there are times where there's a, a unique and beautiful manifestation of God's spirit in that way. And so it's still happening today. People's lives are still being transformed, and they're encountering Jesus. So we have so much evidence and so many things pointing to Jesus being the Son of God. Was he right? Whatever you hear, whatever the arguments are, I think I just I want to look at this part here to end with Jesus asking this question. He says in Matthew 16, 14, he was with the disciples and he asked them, he said, who do people say I am? They answered, some people say you are John the baptizer, others that you're Elijah, and some say you are Jeremiah or one of the prophets, right? Who, he asked the man on the street question, right? But back then, who, who do people say I am? And people have their opinions. They have their thoughts. We heard from some of them. One of the most famous known people in, in the world is Bono. He's the, the, the lead singer of U2. Any, any U2 fans still out there? Anyone? Anyone? Yeah? Here's what, respect, here's what he says. He says, I don't think you're let off easy by saying Jesus was a great thinker or philosopher because actually he went around saying he was the Messiah. That's why he was crucified. He was crucified because he said he was the son of God. So he either, in my view, was the son of God or he was nuts. I find it hard to accept that whole millions and millions of lives, half the earth for 2,000 years have been touched, have felt their lives touched and inspired by some nutter. I just, I don't believe it. I believe Jesus was the son of God. I mean, just this clear understanding, this clear declaration of, of, of you look at it, and you experience it, but it has to become something not just informational, it has to become personal. And Jesus went on to say when he asked his disciples, who do people say I am? It continues, it says, Jesus said to his followers, and who do you say I am? Because that's really a difference, right? It's not just what do people say out there, but who do you say I am? And Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. So I know that's a lot of information. There's a lot of things that we take in, but the question comes back to each and every one of us, not just who do people say I am, but who do you say I am? That's what Jesus is asking you today. And I want you really right now, I want you in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit right now to say and answer that question. Jesus is asking you, who do you say I am? Not what Bono says, not what Nikki Gumbel says, not what... Alistair McGrath, some theologian, says, not what Pastor Mark says, who do you say? Each of us has to answer that question. We can look at the historical evidence and the textual criticism. We can see all the things that Jesus said about himself. And we look at that, and I don't know if I had to answer that question for myself, too. I don't believe he's a liar. I don't believe he's crazy. And I know I've experienced him for myself. I believe he's the Lord. I believe it's true. I believe you can build your life on that fact, that we can know the creator. We know the who and we know the why, that he's come to give you life and to give you life in all of its fullness and all of its abundance. And we have to move from just intellectual arguments and, and, and proofs for God and evidence, and we can begin there, we can process those things, but ultimately it has to move from our head and has to move into our heart. 
and become something that we build our lives on, something that begins to change our lives, begins to change the way that we see the world, the outlook that we have. And so who is Jesus? Who do you say I am? Let's bow our heads in prayer. And I'm just going to leave you with that, that question. Our Heavenly Father, we just pause and take a moment to reflect on your word, your teaching, the things that you've said about yourself. As we think about your life, God, I'm aware that, that many here in, gathered, we have accepted you as Lord and Savior, that we acknowledge you as the Son of God. That's why we gather each and every week to celebrate your resurrection, not just on Easter Sunday, but every Sunday, God, that you're alive in us, that you're real. And God, so we give you thanks. We're just reminded again by these truths that just affirm our faith, that give us a solid footing. But remind us, God, it's not just in our head, it's in our heart, and that we get to experience you each and every day. Father, I know there's others that are searching that don't know you, that may have never been introduced to you, that have questions or have doubts. And Father, you promise to reveal yourself to each person who seeks. And so, Father, I pray that your spirit would draw each person closer to you today. And if that means today declaring for the first time that you are the Son of God, I pray that that truth just invades someone's heart today, moves from their head into their heart, into their spirit, and just begins a brand new journey. And just in the simplicity of a moment like this in prayer, just to cry out to you and say, yes, Lord, I believe you are my God. Help me take these next steps, Lord. I thank you that you're continuing to bring new life. God, I thank you for what you did in Asbury and are continuing to do through others. But God, I know you're doing it in this place. You're doing it all around us. Continue to change lives and draw us closer to you, God. We love you and we know and believe you are the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.